Hi, my name is Jonathan Peza, and welcome to episode two of the weekly podcast, Pulp, where we take a journey one page at a time through the literary underground of pulp fiction. I think it's important to say that I am not a pulp fiction expert or historian. I'm just like you, a fan, and an adventurer delving into the literary past as a way to better understand the comics, films, and books that fostered my love of storytelling. The works of people like George Lucas, Alan Moore, Steven Spielberg, George Miller, and James Cameron defined my childhood. But what were the sources that inspired them? Would we have Indiana Jones without Doc Savage? Would we have The Terminator without Philip K. Dick's Second Variety or Han Solo without C.L. Moore's Northwest Smith? The answer is likely no. And all of these progenitors to stories I obsessed about, well, still obsess about, came from one place, the Pulps. In addition to this show, I also create the Curious Matter Anthology, which adapts similar short stories to the ones found here into full-cast, cinematically-produced audio dramas, which I encourage you also listen to. But while producing Curious Matter Anthology, I found myself getting more and more immersed into a literary culture of pulp magazines that I, until now, had known very little about. The more I read, the more I learned the clearer it became that this rich cultural history deserved a show of its own. So, here we are. Today's story, spelled 2BR02B, but read as 2B or not to be, was first published in the January 1962 issue of Worlds of If, and it was written by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Vonnegut's 1967 semi-autobiographical science fiction satire, Slaughterhouse-Five, is considered one of the greatest novels of the 20th century. But long before he was hailed and revered, Kurt was just another writer of speculative fiction experimenting and eking out a living writing for the pulps. Now getting into this story. Dictionary.com defines dystopia as an imagined state or society in which there is great suffering or injustice, typically one that is totalitarian or post-apocalyptic. If you've gone to the movie theater any time in the last 30 years, it's pretty clear that dystopian futures are not only the rage, but the standard when it comes to the modern flavor of science fiction. Though early entries into this category like H.G. Wells' Time Machine, George Orwell's 1984, and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World help foster the style, it's from within the pages of magazines like Galaxy Science Fiction, Pulp Stories, Analog, and Science Fiction Quarterly, where with the help of stories like To Be or Not To Be, the seeds of dystopia grew into a thriving subgenre. The teaser line for this story reads, Got a problem? Just pick up the phone. It solved them all, and all the same way. To Be or Not To Be explores an atheistic future where advancements in medicine help people live forever giving way to a totalitarian government that strictly controls population. It is one of three stories Vonnegut wrote exploring overpopulation and how utopian solutions to struggles of the human condition often have the opposite effect. Much of Vonnegut's work is colored by his experience as a prisoner of the Nazis in World War II. As you listen to today's story, it's hard not to draw parallels. The imagery and setting he describes helps to better illustrate this story's stark criticism of ideologies that prioritize a so-called greater good over individualism. This story is rated explicit, 
and though expressed through Vonnegut's darkly satirical signature style, includes adult content and depictions of violence equivalent to an R-rated film. So, without further ado, sit back, turn out the lights, and let me tell you a story. Everything was perfectly swell. There were no prisons, no slums, no insane asylums, no cripples, no poverty, no wars. All diseases were conquered, and so was old age. Death barring accidents was an adventure for volunteers. The population of the United States was stabilized at 40 million souls. One bright morning in the Chicago Lying-In Hospital, a man named Edward K. Welling Jr. waited for his wife to give birth. He was the only man waiting. Not many people were born a day anymore. Welling was 56, a mere stripling in a population whose average age was 129. X-rays had revealed that his wife was going to have triplets. The children would be his first. Young Welling was hunched in his chair, his head in his hands. He was so rumpled, so still and colorless as to be virtually invisible. His camouflage was perfect, since the waiting room had a disorderly and demoralized air, too. Chairs and ashtrays had been moved away from the walls. The floor was paved with spattered drop cloths. The room was being redecorated. It was being redecorated as a memorial to a man who had volunteered to die. A sardonic man about 200 years old sat on a stepladder painting a mural he did not like. Back in the days when people aged visibly, his age would have been guessed at 35 or so. Aging had touched him that much before the cure for aging was found. The mural he was working on depicted a very neat garden. Men and women in white, doctors and nurses, turned the soil, planted seedlings, sprayed bugs, spread fertilizer. Men and women in purple uniforms pulled up weeds, cut down plants that were old and sickly, raked leaves, and carried refuse to trash burners. Never, 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 not even in medieval Holland nor old Japan had a garden been more formal, been better tended. Every plant had all the loam, light, water, air, and nourishment it could use. A hospital orderly came down the corridor singing under his breath a popular song. If you don't like my kisses, honey, here's what I will do. I'll go see a girl in purple, kiss the sad world to the loo. If you don't want my loving, why should I take up all this space? I'll get off this old planet, let some sweet baby take my place. The orderly looked at the mural and the muralist. Looks so real, he said. I can practically imagine I'm standing in the middle of it. What makes you think you're not in it? said the painter. He gave a satiric smile. It's called the Happy Garden of Life, you know. That's good of Mr. Hitz, said the orderly. He was referring to one of the male figures in white, whose head was a portrait of Dr. Benjamin Hitz, the hospital's chief obstetrician. Hitz was a blindingly handsome man. Lots of faces to fill in, said the orderly. He meant that the faces of many of the figures in the mural were still blank. All blanks were to be filled in with portraits of important people on either the hospital staff or from the Chicago office of the Federal Bureau of Termination. Must be nice to make pictures that look like something, 
said the orderly. The painter's face curdled with scorn. You think I'm proud of this, Dob? He said. You think this is my idea of what life really looks like? What's your idea of what life looks like, said the orderly. The painter gestured at a foul drop cloth. There's a good picture of it, he said. Frame that, and you'll have a picture a damn sight more honest than this one. You're a gloomy old duck, aren't you? said the orderly. That a crime? said the painter. The orderly shrugged. If you don't like it here, Grandpa, he said. And he finished the thought with the trick telephone number that people who didn't want to live anymore were supposed to call. The zero in the telephone number, he pronounced not. The number was 2BR-NOT-2B. It was a telephone number of an institution whose fanciful sobriquets included Automat, Birdland, Cannery, Catbox, DeLouser, Easy Go, Goodbye Mother, Happy Hooligan, Kiss Me Quick, Lucky Pierre, Sheep Dip, Warring Blender, Weep No More, and Why Worry? To Be or Not To Be was the telephone number of the municipal gas chambers of the Federal Bureau of Termination. The painter thumbed his nose at the orderly. When I decide it's my time to go, he said, it won't be at the sheep dip. A do-it-yourselfer, eh? said the orderly. Messy business, Grandpa. Why don't you have a little consideration for the people who have to clean up after you? The painter expressed with an obscenity his lack of concern for the tribulations of his survivors. The world could do with a good deal more mess if you ask me, he said. The orderly laughed and moved on. Welling, the waiting father, mumbled something without raising his head, and then he fell silent again. A coarse, formidable woman strode into the waiting room on spiked heels. Her shoes, stocking, trench coat, bag, and overseas cap were all purple. The purple the painter called the color of grapes on Judgment Day. The medallion on her purple musette bag was the seal of the service division of the Federal Bureau of Termination, an eagle perched on a turnstile. The woman had a lot of facial hair, uh, an unmistakable mustache in fact. A curious thing about gas chamber hostesses was that no matter how lovely and feminine they were when recruited, they all sprouted mustaches within five years or so. Is this where I'm supposed to come? She said to the painter. A lot would depend on what your business was, he said. You aren't about to have a baby, are you? They told me I was supposed to pose for some picture, she said. My name's Leora Duncan. She waited. And you dunk people, he said. What? She said. Skip it, he said. That shore is a beautiful picture. Looks like heaven or something. Or something said the painter. He took a list of names from his smock pocket. Duncan, 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 he said, scanning the list. Yeah, yes, here you are. Uh, you're entitled to be immortalized. See any faceless body here you'd like to stick your head on? We've got a few choice ones left. She studied the mural bleakly. Gee, they're all the same to me. I don't know anything about art. A body's a body, eh? He said. Alrighty. As a master of fine art, I recommend this body here. He indicated a faceless figure of a woman who was carrying dried stalks to a trash burner. Well, said Leora Duncan, that's more the disposal people, isn't it? I mean, I'm in service. I don't do any disposing. 
the painter clapped his hands in mock delight. You say you don't know anything about art, and then you prove in your next breath that you know more than I do. Of course the sheave carrier is wrong for the hostess. A snipper, a pruner, that's more your line. He pointed at a figure in purple who was sawing a dead branch from an apple tree. How about her? He said. You like her at all? Gosh, she said, and she blushed and became humble. That puts me right next to Dr. Hitz. That upset you? He said. Good gravy, no. It's, it's just such an honor. Ah, you admire him, he said. Who doesn't admire him? She said, worshipping the portrait of Hintz. It was a portrait of a tanned, white-haired, omnipotent Zeus, 240 years old. Who doesn't admire him? She said again. He was responsible for setting up the very first gas chamber in Chicago. Nothing would please me more said the painter, then to put you next to him for all time, sawing off a limb. That strikes you as appropriate? That is kind of what I do, she said. She was demure about what she did. What she did was make people comfortable while she killed them. And while Leora Duncan was posing for her portrait, into the waiting room bounded Dr. Hitz himself. He was seven feet tall, and he boomed with importance, accomplishments, and the joy of living. Well, Miss Duncan, Miss Duncan, he said, and he made a joke. What are you doing here? This isn't where the people leave. This is where they come in. We're going to be in the same picture together, she said shyly. Good, said Mr. Hintz heartily. And say, isn't that some picture? I'm sure honored to be in it with you, she said. Let me tell you, I'm honored to be in it with you. Without women like you, this wonderful world we've got wouldn't be possible. He saluted her and moved towards the door that led to the delivery rooms. Guess what was just born, he said. I can't, she said. Triplets. Triplets? She exclaimed over the legal ramifications of triplets. The law said that no newborn child could survive unless the parents of the child could find someone who would volunteer to die triplets, if they were all to live, called for three volunteers. Do the parents have three volunteers? said Leora Duncan. Last I heard, said Dr. Hitz, they had one and were trying to scrape up another two. I don't think they've made it, she said. Nobody made three appointments with us. Nothing but singles going through today. Unless somebody called in after I left, what's the name? Welling said the waiting father, sitting up red-eyed and frowsy. Edward K. Welling Jr. is the name of the happy father-to-be. He raised his right hand, looked at a spot on the wall, and gave a hoarsely wretched chuckle. Present, he said. Oh, Mr. Welling, said Dr. Hitz. I didn't see you. The invisible man, said Welling. They just phoned me that your triplets have been born, said Mr. Hitz. They're all fine, and so is the mother. I'm on my way in to see them now. Hooray, said Welling emptily. You don't sound very happy, said Dr. Hitz. What man in my shoes would be happy, said Welling. He gestured with his hands to symbolize carefree simplicity. All I have to do is pick out which one of the triplets is going to live, then deliver my maternal grandmother to the happy hooligan and come back here with a receipt. Dr. Hitz became rather severe with Welling, towered over him. You don't believe in population control, Mr. Welling? I think it's perfectly keen, 
said Welling tautly. Would you like to go back to the good old days when the population of Earth was 20 billion? About to become 40 billion, then 80 billion, then 160 billion? Do you know what Druplet is, Mr. Welling? said Hitz. No, said Welling sulkily. A Druplet, Mr. Welling, is one of the little knobs, one of the little pulpy grains of a blackberry, said Mr. Hitz. Without population control, human beings would now be packed on this surface of the old planet like druplets on a blackberry. Think of it! Welling continued to stare at the same spot on the wall. In the year 2000, said Dr. Hitz, before scientists stepped in and laid down the law, there wasn't even enough drinking water to go around, and nothing to eat but seaweed, and still people insisted on their right to reproduce like jackrabbits, and their right, if possible, to live forever. I want those kids, said Welling quietly. I want all three of them. Of course you do, said Dr. Hitz. That's only human. I don't want my grandfather to die either, said Welling. Nobody's really happy about taking a close relative to the cat box, said Dr. Hitz gently, sympathetically. I wish people wouldn't call it that, said Leora Duncan. What? said Dr. Hitz. I wish people wouldn't call it the cat box and things like that, she said. It gives people the wrong impression. You're absolutely right, said Dr. Hitz. Forgive me. He corrected himself, gave the municipal gas chambers their official title, a title no one ever used in conversation. I should have said Ethical Suicide Studios, he said. That sounds much better, said Leora Duncan. The child is yours, whichever one you decide to keep, Mr. Welling. He or she is going to live on a happy, roomy, clean, rich planet thanks to population control. In a garden like that mural there. He shook his head. Two centuries ago, when I was a young man, it was a hell that nobody thought could last another 20 years. Now, centuries of peace and plenty stretch before us as far as the imagination cares to travel. He smiled luminously. The smile faded as he saw that Welling had just drawn a revolver. Welling shot Dr. Hitz dead. There's room for one, a great big one, he said. And then he shot Leora Duncan. It's only death, he said to her as she fell. There, room for two. And then... He shot himself, making room for all three of his children. Nobody came running. Nobody seemingly heard the shots. The painter sat on top of his stepladder, looking down reflectively on the sorry scene. The painter pondered the mournful puzzle of life demanding to be born, and once born, demanding to be fruitful, to multiply and to live as long as possible. To do all that on a very small planet that would have to last forever. All the answers that the painter could think of were grim. Even grimmer surely than the cat box. A happy hooligan, an easy go. He thought of war. He thought of plague. He thought of starvation. He knew that he would never paint again. He let his paintbrush fall to the drop cloths below. And then he decided that he had had about enough of life in the happy garden of life, too. 
and he came slowly down from the ladder. He took Welling's pistol, really intending to shoot himself, but he didn't have the nerve. And then he saw the telephone booth in the corner of the room. He went to it, dialed the well-remembered number, 2BR02B. Federal Bureau of Termination, said the warm voice of a hostess. How soon can I get an appointment? He asked, speaking very carefully. We could probably fit you in later this afternoon, sir. It might even be earlier if we get a cancellation. All right, said the painter. Fit me in if you please. And he gave her his name, spelling it out. Thank you, sir, said the hostess. Your city thanks you. Your country thanks you. Your planet thanks you. But the deepest thanks of all is from future generations. This episode was co-produced by Melissa Starr. The music in today's episode was provided by Epidemic Music. If you like Pulp, check out our sister podcast, The Curious Matter Anthology. We release a new episode every week, so make sure to subscribe for free on the platform of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating or review. You can also follow the show on Twitter under the handle Pulp the Podcast, or reach out to me directly via email at jonathan at pulpthepodcast.com. I'm Jonathan Pezza, your host, and thank you for listening. Thank you.